0: Welcome to the Breaking Stars podcast, where we help people like you understand what you need in order to get a job in tech. Today, we're going to talk about income share agreements with the CEO of Vimo Education and their mission to expand educational access for all Americans. More than 44 million Americans collectively owe about $1.5 trillion in student loans, making it the second most significant form of consumer debt behind mortgage loans. We've talked about this crisis on episode 76 with Gary Vaynerchuk if you want to learn more about this, but... The reason why we are recording this income share agreement series is because of the lack of financial literacy that got many Americans in this situation in the first place. If you want to become financially literate and learn how to get a job in tech with people that have used income share agreements so they can explain their experience to you, make sure you download the Career Karma app by going to breakingintostartups.com slash download. To be clear, this episode is not anti-college. The focus of this episode is to give you a clear understanding of the outcomes-driven options that coding boot camps and colleges offer to get you the job that you want. If this is your first time listening to the Breaking in the Starters podcast, make sure you leave us a review, tell your friends, like our Facebook page, and join the Breaking Stars community. And as you listen to this episode, pay attention to how the line between boot camps and colleges is blurring. For those of you that don't know, Trilogy Education Services has been acquired by 2U for $750 million, and now there are coding boot camps on 68 college campuses and growing. Finally, while it's great that the tight labor market is helping employers, boot camps, and colleges to cooperate more closely to ensure that your skill development pays off in the workforce, remember that solid data and information on the labor market and student outcomes are key to this collaboration. So without further ado, let's break in. Growing up, we're told that in order to be successful, you need to be a banker, a doctor, or a lawyer. That's what the gatekeepers want you to think. But we're part of something bigger. We're part of a technological revolution. Either you're at the table or on the table. Get in the end. 10X. Yo, 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 this is Ruben Harris. I'm here with the homies Archer and Timo Meister. And this is the Breaking Stars podcast. Timo, can you please tell the people what we're doing today?
1: Yeah. So today we're coming to you live out of the Career Karmas HQ in San Francisco. It's a Sunday afternoon our guest is actually dialing in from New York. I know initially we were interviewing guests in person, but there are just so many great guests around the country. So the guest is dialing in. From the very beginning, we wanted to bring you the best resources to help you take control of your careers. And at the end of the day, we want to give you access so you can take control of your careers. So, we have a very special guest today. Ruben, can you please introduce him?
0: Yes, Timor. So, as you mentioned, our guest is joining us from New York. He's a New York native, also spent time in the Marines as a captain, has worked at several educational finance institutions, including organizations like SoFi. And he's currently the CEO of an organization called Vimo Education, which is a leading provider of income share agreements, which is an innovative financing model, not just for Coding boot camps, but also for traditional universities, not just for software engineers, but all kinds of different skill sets. It's a really exciting episode for anyone that's trying to figure out how to manage their finances as they prepare for a career transition. I mean, you definitely want to pay attention to this, but for now, let's just say welcome, Tonio.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, no, thank you. So I think to start off, I think it'd be helpful for you to kind of like explain what an income share agreement is what VMO education is and how you position yourself in the whole career transition space.
2: Sure. An income share agreement is a contract where in exchange for some or all of tuition, student agrees to pay a percentage of his or her future income for a defined period of months. The amount paid is, has a cap on it and nothing's below a minimum income threshold. And so that's, it's kind of novel in the world. Yeah. Uh, Idea is old, but it's been becoming popular of late. Now, what Vimo Education does is not just make ISAs or income share agreements. We help schools succeed with income share agreements. So I don't run a website where people can come and get money. Mm -hmm. I run a business that helps colleges, code boot camps, and college alternatives use income share agreements to succeed strategically. That means meet students' needs in a way that causes students to pick their school over their competitor schools.
0: Mm-hmm. No, that, that's super helpful. And for, I think you mentioned a few things earlier about, you know, when people think about education, they're usually thinking about it for a job. Some people disagree with that statement, but I think for the purposes of this conversation, we're going to think about education as a stepping stone towards a job. Historically, obviously, you know, people get student loans, and there's different phases with this income share agreement movement. So can you kind of like talk about how it was historically and what it is now and where do you think it's going?
2: Sure. The idea dates back to the 1950s. It's had conservative and, and liberal backers. And it started as a student loan alternative. So the idea was, hey, student loans aren't great. This is better. So use income share agreements. And the most popular or popularly known experiment with this Historically, was at Yale University in the 1970s. Students there agreed to pay a percent of their income for a, an undefined period of time, up until investors in the program reached a return threshold. So there was a investors were guaranteed a certain return on their investment, and students had to pay until they received that. The highest paying students, the lowest, the lowest earning graduates, didn't have to pay anything, and the middle earners kind of got saddled with an unfair burden. So that program was deemed a failure, even though, like, a uh, President Obama had an appointee at the FCC, Blair Levin, who wrote about how it was good for him. Did it? It, caught, it did help Yale with access and mobility for students, you know, access and opportunity, but it didn't really go anywhere. I think where ISAs went from there, kind of resurfaced again in the peer-to-peer space. Most successful business in that space was Upstart which is successful today even. Brilliant people who are winning doing loans right now and loan software and technology. But Upstart had a plan to match individual investors with individual students or people who needed capital. And it was to help them fund things that were high risk, like entrepreneurship, in addition to things that are pretty stable, like education. And that had a hard time scaling also. I think it's, it's really difficult to scale something like that without some kind of institution involved, whether it's an investor or a school. And and where ISAs have really scaled now, I think the history of income share agreements starts again in 2016. That's when make school who'd been out there for a long time doing income share agreements, App Academy, were joined by other institutions like Purdue University, Holberton School, probably others, who have since caused income share agreements to be the dominant method of financing for college alternatives. It's becoming dominant for code boot camps, and it's becoming mainstream for colleges.
1: Yeah. And I think uh, we're especially interested in uh, this type of payment model for our students because for the first time, well, not for the first time, but for the first time in the coding bootcamp space, the school actually puts something on the line and they have just as much to risk as the student. And from the student's perspective, when they select a school, it's also almost a guarantee from the school that the school believes that the skills they're teaching them will lead to an outcome. So my question to you is, when you speak to boot camps and you tell them about these models, what has been the reception? Are, are boot camps ex- excited about income sharing or, or are some boot camps hesitant to adapt it?
2: Well, first, I, the good news is I, I, we find our boot camp clients are very... Attuned to what students want. And this idea is wildly popular mm. with potential code bootcamp students. So every code bootcamp is examining how th- they're going to have some kind of income share agreement strategy. I would say that income share agreements are an answer to the question is this worth it? And you have to answer that question. I think there's more than one way to answer it. So you could make your school free. That's one way to answer it. You know, maybe we have employers pay. You know, or, or people who hire your students pay you and be like be a giant recruitment agency. But mm-hmm. for people who expect consumers to pay, this is probably the best answer out there for is it worth it? How do you prove that it's worth it? Yep. So everybody's either doing this already or examining how they're going to articulate value to potential code bootcamp students and be competitive.
3: Yeah. yeah. And so there's a lot of uh, folks who are familiar with the student loan or student financing approach that, like traditionally. Universities, higher ed provided. Can you compare, an I say, to a student loan, and what are the cost-benefit analysis of kind of both methods of paying for your education?
2: Well, if you compare high income share agreements to student loans, you have in a student loan you have principal and interest, and you're keeping score with the time value of money. Mm-hmm. You owe that money regardless of what happens. Now you know how much it's going to be, and that's a relative advantage. And your payment can be known ahead of time. But you pay until it's paid off, regardless of what happens. Income share agreements are different. There's a risk share. Whoever gave a student an income share agreement doesn't get paid unless the student has some kind of positive outcome, earns over a minimum income threshold, for example. Income share agreements also all end after a defined number of payments, whereas loans can negatively amortize. That means if you pay less than the full payment on a loan, your balance gets bigger. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't exist in income share agreements. So from a consumer side, I think that's the biggest difference. Mm -hmm. I think separately is that loans traditionally just haven't been done in partnership with schools the way that income share agreements are today. And so the schools offering income share agreements are standing behind them, Mm -hmm. as you said, you know, in a way that hasn't ever been available to people in loan relationships before.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, for people that are listening, I think, you know, there's a common misconception that income share agreements are really, really good for high paying jobs like software engineering and like it doesn't go beyond that. So, you know, is that a accurate assessment of things? Do you think that income share agreements can be applied to education as a whole or how do you think about ISAs related to like liberal arts or things like that?
2: I wasn't sure when we started VMO how it was going to look or how the market would react. And we really hadn't examined all the data until we got going. And this is in 2015 when we started. Our experience has been that income share agreements work great outside of STEM. You know, at Purdue University, our biggest program to date at a college, we're in our third academic year. We have a representative number of students in the ISA program who are non STEM versus STEM, Mm -hmm. as opposed to like the eight eligible student population, also male, female, also in state, out of state. We're at 22 colleges and universities now at the time we're recording this and adding oh. all the time. That's even more clients than I have in the code boot camp and college alternative space. Yeah. And our colleges are using this for all of their students. They're using this across the board. And, and it, I'll tell you, they're doing that because it works. In general, education is always worth it when it works. It's just how do you define what works? You yeah. know, the problem with most code boot camps, you know, they're short, they're concentrated, they're selective about who they let start. And they're very focused about jobs. Yep. Not all colleges accept that responsibility for employment outcomes, even though 88% of students and parents that's their primary desire. And so, for colleges and for colleges and universities who do accept that, this is how they can stand out. You know, if they're investing in outcomes for students, uh, then using income share agreements, even for their non-Stem students, lets them show that they're going to invest in those outcomes. And it's not that they are you know, not charging differently. That there's no there's no trick to this. They're, they really are worth it when you finish. And I think the hard part here is for students. And I know you have a lot of veterans, for example, in your listenership. Yep. For a lot of veterans, college could be effectively free with the GI bill, but it doesn't help you pick a college. Yeah. You know, we use income share agreements at BMO, not to tell you how you get to pay for this, but which one do you pick? Mm-hmm. And if we're helping colleges, who stand out because they have high graduation rates, you know, not some kind of rock tumbler place where you come in and might be there eight years to get a two-year degree or, you know, 10 years to get a four-year degree or something terrible, you know, where important classes aren't offered frequently. These are real problems that veterans, into, I know, it, at certain colleges, but even, sadly, sometimes public institutions. Colleges who really meet students' needs make sure they graduate on time and their careers ready for them, can use income share agreements to stand out, and they work great. Even for non STEM courses of study.
0: Yeah, yeah. If I'm a coding bootcamp provider or educator and I'm thinking about working with an income share agreement provider like VMO Education, like what's the process of like being one of you, like hiring you?
2: If a school wants to work with VMO, any kind, yeah. we visit and we take inventory of what's there. We want to know what does the school already know about its outcomes? What kind of people attend? You know, are they trying to change anything? We want to know what's valuable for a school. For some schools, it's as simple as they want a lower cost of student acquisition. But for other schools, they're looking for things like to increase diversity in their student body. They're looking, for example, income share agreements are forward-looking. We care about who you are after you finish the school, not who your parents were or who you were even before the school. And so we let schools diversify their enrollment differently. They can enroll more people who are underrepresented who might not qualify for loans and that's who employers want these schools to be enrolling. Yeah. You know, At the college level, we have a Colorado Mountain Program for Dreamers. Mm-hmm. So these are people who aren't eligible for federal awesome. student aid because they don't qualify as U.S. citizens or permanent residents under federal law. And the colleges want to have them. They think it's really important to their diversity. Yeah. And, and there's other outcomes that colleges want, for example, optimizing graduation rates, that kind of thing. And we can use income share agreements as a target form of financial aid there. So we take inventory of student data, we take inventory of the college's strategic benefit, and then we design a program the strategic goals. We design a program that will accomplish that for less money than anything else they could do. Yeah. And if they need outside capital, we have to work with outside investors to bring that in.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's awesome. I'm especially around dreamers. A lot of the people that want to take advantage of income share agreements, a lot of times don't typically meet certain credit requirements. Is that something that's excludes people or is it inclusive of people like that would like to take advantage of income share agreement?
2: Most of our college clients do not have what we call credit knockouts yep. for people who are going to get income share agreements. Yep. A number of our code bootcamp clients have to consider that. They have to yep. consider if a person has, for example, already gone through an undergraduate degree yep. and never made a payment on a student loan, it's a dumb idea to, to put them in another application that, you know, if they've, for example, defaulted recently on student loans, it's a dumb idea to give them something else to default on. Mm -hmm. That's just not responsible on the part of the school. Mm -hmm. So we, I would say that if you have a thin file or no file as a a person, income share agreements are great. They don't discriminate against you the way that loans do. If you're a person who's got a bad relationship with credit, it's not, this isn't going to be any different, right? If you can't follow through and make a payment on a thing, if you don't open your mail, you know, it's, it's a dumb idea for a school to double down on that and give you another opportunity to fail at that. Like you need to, I think what we find is that schools use credit knockouts, meaning they'll say, hey, look, if you just recently defaulted on a thing, we need you to go make that right with the people you did wrong mm-hmm. before we can give you an income share agreement here. And that encourages responsible behavior that will help the students succeed in the workforce. Got it. Got it. Okay.
1: Yeah. What is your thought on um, just the way education is going? So, outside of what you're doing with Vimo, now technology is a moving fast. There's a lot of new jobs that are being created. How should one of our listeners position themselves to have a competitive career for the next 10, 20 years? How should they think about kind of structuring their studies, their careers, the whole approach so they end up winning and end up ahead of everyone else?
2: Well, I can't think that as an educator or even as a, a, you know, a person who's been some kind of a template for success there, but I can say that as a, I hire people and what we're always trying to hire is someone who is a good employee, like a, a good team member. So that's the soft skills people talk about. I think it's really important to develop those. I love when people can communicate well in writing. And I think that goes to the importance for many people of uh, liberal arts studies, if not a full degree, you know, at least learning, you know, studying and trying to be great at reading and writing and communicating, and then some hard skill and the ability to learn new hard skills. And so I think, you know, it meshes with what you all are experiencing, what you're building your business on, which is people keeping fresh in their careers by adding skills from time to time Mm -hmm. and moving up by being willing to embrace change. And I guess, you know, willing to diversify the kind of education they're getting and not just starting one thing one time and then dropping out of it forever.
0: Yeah. Can you talk about your experience as a financier within the education space and what you've seen across the different spaces that you've been in? Because when you think about, like, to Timor's question around a career transition, there's, like, companies that want to hire people that have open jobs available. There's people that may, that want jobs that may or may not have the skills. There's an educator that's there. But then there's the finance piece that could come from out-of-pocket money. It could come from you know, scholarships. It could come from government. It could come from income share agreements. It could come from student loans. So can you talk about this finance piece so people can really, really understand it and, and kind of like from your end of like what you've seen before getting into the income share agreement space and like the phases that you see of where ISAs are going over time? Sure.
2: I think I mean, there's certain parts of education finance in post-secondary ed that are subsidized a lot by the federal government. And if they're subsidized a lot, it doesn't make sense for us to try to go compete with that. People who, for example, are eligible for Pell Grants or veterans benefits should take them and use them first. And people who can get a subsidized federal loan are probably best off doing that. We see income share agreements as something that fills in around the gap and helps for people who've maybe already exhausted those resources. And so there are certain schools who don't want to be eligible for federal financial aid, and sometimes there's a good reason for that. Sometimes that can pervert a school's incentives or steer it the wrong way. There are also schools who help a lot of people who've already used all their federal aid. That can be an adult learner who meandered in their teens and twenties, and now they're really serious. It can be a, a person with a drug conviction or a felony conviction, because there could be a, that makes them ineligible for federal aid. It could be a dreamer, like we said, or a veteran who gave their benefits to a family member while they were in, and now they're out and they're looking to study something at a college that itself has federal aid and they've used all of theirs. So I think income share agreements are a great supplemental tool and I think they're important because if you're not in the federal financial aid system, that's when you're taking the most risk as a student. Yep. You know, and so I think that's when it's most important for schools to opt in to sharing risk with students to show that this is the right one for them. I think the last piece of this and it's not my business, but I see a lot of schools being very smart about building pipes directly to employers. You know, in the end, the measure of success for a lot of students, and again, it's more than half, more than half of students are non-traditional students. They have a kid, you know, they, or another dependent they have to care for. They've tried traditional education as a young person, maybe, but they're back now, you know, first time, full time student was in the past. Now they're back trying to change something about their career move up. And for those people a school who actually delivers the job is the valuable one, it's the right one, and schools are owning that. So I appreciated that a lot of schools, they don't even necessarily need an income share agreement, but they do need really good employer pipes. And employers, look at the market. If you ask them what's hard, I'm, I'm an employer, it's hard to hire. We want people to work here who are great. Anybody who can bring them to me is special and valuable. And so schools who undertake to do that are going to be special and valuable and make money doing it. And that, I think employers are going to be a source of payment. You know, they'll pay for students to do projects in school, maybe, or pay for um, access to students at schools, and that'll help subsidize education for people.
0: Yep. That makes sense. That makes sense. And we talked a little bit about venture capital during the pre-chat. You know, venture capital for the people that are listening and don't know, you know, provides funding for startups for people that are entrepreneurs or people that start businesses to get funded and start organizations that grow quickly and reach millions and billions of people. Do you see venture capital money going into the income share agreement space? Is it something that you think is going to stay in Wall Street? Or how do you think about venture capital when it comes to income share agreements?
2: I definitely do. My business is venture-backed and we've raised a few rounds of venture capital, including one unannounced. And... um, and so, yeah, I think that there are venture scale opportunities here. The two ways, I think there's two directions that can move. Income share agreements are a valuable tool. Yep. And to have a utility layer that simply processes income share agreements really well at great scale, both in the United States and globally, is a venture scale opportunity. Yeah. Also, a venture scale opportunity is using them well, because there's so much value in helping Colleges, universities, and code boot camps use income share agreements to succeed strategically. And I think it could be very disruptive to traditional ed tech and education services businesses when a company like Vimo can help colleges, for example, achieve an outcome, a higher graduation rate, a higher yield from an applicant pool by selectively using income share agreements, other financial aid tools, and being expert in that. And the two opportunities are complementary but
0: they might not be the same. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of things that are global, I think a lot of people would like to spend a lot of time focusing on successes. In your experience, you mentioned you know, you were looking at things in Latin America and other places that were exploring income share agreements and things that didn't work out. when They were trying to approach income share agreements. Can you talk about that and why they didn't work out and you know, just tips in general as people are considering? I guess this is encouraging competition, but just more like how do you structure like an income share agreement program that's successful, and how can we learn from failure?
2: Well, I can tell you about, yeah, I have a view on why they maybe weren't successful before. My, you mentioned in my intro, I was in, a lawyer in private practice before co-founding Vimo, and I got to help a bunch of people try income share agreement business, including internationally and in the United States, for-profit and non-profit. And none of those businesses scaled as income share agreement providers. At the time, I didn't know why, but I think my understanding here, and vimo's built on these understandings, these insights, you really needed to have, income share agreements are a weak competition, weak competitor to loans on a head-to-head basis, because we lack, it's a new thing. You know, there hasn't been, nobody's scaled a business and put billions of dollars of income share agreements out there that we can measure and watch what happens, you know, build that performance history that private student loans, private student lenders have. We don't have that venture scale opportunity to process income share agreements. Nobody's done it yet. Nobody is huge and reliable and safe and easy to use to originate and service income share agreements. And I think in the absence of of those, income share agreement capital is prohibitively expensive. So what's required was going and finding a valuable way to do this in partnership with someone where where you could compensate for those disadvantages. Vimo is about working with colleges, accelerated learning providers, where there is strategic value in getting it right, and then letting them subsidize the investor side. So if you're a school, and this is wildly popular, and a lot of people apply because you use income share agreements, you save a lot of money on marketing and acquisition of students. You can take half those savings and use it to buy down the cost of your students' income share agreements. We find schools using even all their savings to do that because they really are just trying to make their value proposition better for students. And that's made these things competitive and able to scale. But I got to say, you, you're, to your point, this was a holy grail, dumb idea in 2016. And it had been tried and failed over and over by the smartest people all over the place. It was really, really... If, you are, if you're going to raise money for an income share agreement business today, it should be hopefully a lot easier than it was three years ago. It was it was pretty impossible yeah. uh, because there was a track record of failure, and because people can't help but look at this and see it as some kind of lending play when it really is not a lending play. You know, there's money moving. We have to count what happened to graduates. So you have to move money back. You know, it's a it's a financing tool, but the value of this tool is very different from the value of a lending tool. Yeah, yeah.
3: I think so. You have lots of insights about financing, but we would love to hear a little bit about your background and kind of. What was your experience like learning, acquiring skills, and then how did you approach positioning yourself for a successful career and starting this company, Vimo?
2: Sure. Well, I grew up in the middle of nowhere in upstate New York. Went to college with a scholarship to the military, so I went to the Naval Academy. Graduated. Was a Marine Corps artilleryman for six years and had a great experience doing that. It was actually a pretty technical job for a Marine. I had to submit to some. Technical training, and initially I resisted it. I thought, "Man, I just want to camp out in the woods with my buddies and like explode junk and whatever." Artillery was was pretty technical, and I'd been a political science major in undergrad. I had to embrace that. This is part of just being great, you know. I want to be a great leader for my Marines. I want to be really successful in my unit, and that requires me to embrace the chance to learn some hard skills here. So I that was my first experience having to go and learn technical skills that I wasn't super excited about. To master a role and get promoted in a role that I was excited about. I later left the Marine Corps, went to law school, studied kind of what I wanted there. I was focused on just getting a job when I left, and I got to a law firm. And not too differently, I um, there I was at this law firm and thinking the whole time, man, you know, my clients have it good. I'd rather have their job. You know, th- their job seems so much easier. I would think lazily, and I think a lot of young lawyers think this. You know, I'm smarter than those clients. I should, I should be the business guy. And in real life. Law was where it really sunk in, even though I probably should have learned at the first time in artillery, that every career, no matter whether they admit it or not, is an apprenticeship. Mm. You know, this is all about people. Even if you have a technical job, you know, you learn how to function in a in on a team and succeed technically and you learn all these shortcuts from being around other people who are great, maybe having a boss who's great, ideally having a boss who's great. You know, at this law firm, I realized that I just needed to be great at law. You know, I had to submit to that. And earn my way up. You know, I, the I had to be great at something basically. Like even my business people were great at something. And later when I went to SoFi, they had you know a marketer who was a great marketer and an operations person who was a great operator and a business development person who's great at business development. And I didn't, I hadn't given them credit for being as hard and technical as they were and for taking years to be great at. And they really all are. And so I guess the other thing is this. I mean, it, it works both ways. If, if you're in a marketing role today. And you're thinking, well, I couldn't be technical. That that's different. I don't think it is. You know, if you want to be great at a thing, you do have to. You have to hit yourself with somebody great. You have to you have to invest in being great. And you're going to have to learn stuff that's uncomfortable sometimes yeah. to come out on the other side of it as an expert. If a person can do that, running a call center, managing a retail store, they can do it in some technical role, I would guess. You know, some of the, some of the fields that you all are working on at Career Karma, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I just. I wouldn't underestimate. What it takes to be excellent in anything. And a person who can be excellent in anything can be excellent in anything, like I, <laughs> I, I mean, almost anything, you know. And so I worked around excellent lawyers. I learned what it took. I went to Sofi. I saw, heck, the managers here, the leaders here, they're excellent too. Yep. And it, it gave me a new respect for all the other things, people, you know, all the other professional disciplines. And so now, as a CEO, you know, as a co-founder and CEO of a venture-backed business, I'm looking for people as individual contributors who want to become excellent at a thing and also as management team members who've come up the curve. And I don't, you know, the only way to do it is to come up, to suck it up and be great at it. You don't get to be the vice president of a thing at a company like mine with institutional customers. And so our, our colleges are institutional customers and they need to see vice presidents at BMO who are as good as the vice presidents at the college and who sucked it up and sat through, you know, the hard part of a career to learn that. The good news is it lets them spot talent in their lane. It lets them recruit, you know, it lets us make our own talent. But yeah, my, my talent story, there, skill story was, uh, really underappreciating what everybody else had, thinking that I was in the hard field and kind of wishing I didn't have to do the hard thing. And now, now learning that like, i um, a few years past this realization, but you know, a number of years ago, just learning like, wow, every job's like this. Yeah. And there are no lo- shortcuts.
3: Yeah. And I love your point about kind of like how every job is an apprenticeship. I think that's very powerful. And a lot of people over index on like taking a Udemy course or taking a MOOC or finding something that sounds like a great, like magic bullet that once you take this course is going to teach you how to build self driving cars. And then you're going to be able to get a job right after you graduate that course. And you don't need to actually immerse yourself with the industry, get to know other people who have done it successfully and kind of like almost like false confidence that just information alone is going to help you get the job. And your point about how you, you trained, you kind of forced yourself to learn about artillery and then you learned law and now you're also starting a company. I think that just points to like the importance of who you surround yourself with and immersing yourself in an environment that's going to give you those skills and kind of like, What's the word I'm looking for? Like institutionalize yourself for that specific role because everyone starts out being an outsider, and by interacting with insiders, that's how you become one of the folks on the inside. And that's what Career Karma and Breaking the Startups is essentially doing, helping people hear these stories and seeing the the paths that folks took to become software engineers or designers or product managers. So I definitely kind of identify with the point you made. I'm curious, like, what do you see the future of education and skill training because I think at least in the 20th century most of this was the American dream was going to college getting a job afterwards buying a house and now we're seeing that more and more people are can't afford to go to college more and more people can't afford to buy a house the jobs that people thought of that that were um, in high demand are no longer in high demand a lot of them are moving overseas so what advice would you have for people who are just starting their careers? How they should approach picking what to focus on and kind of setting themselves up for a successful career.
2: Well, I have two big themes I would touch on there. One is, and the, sh- the shorter one I'll say first, you have to take ownership of your own career. You know, there's not a even if you're at a company that says that you're on a track, or if, you know, if you're at a. I went to law school. I mean, law school is a very focused school, mm-hmm. Street training you for a specific role, a specific job. Take ownership of that and not expect that you can go and. They're not all the same. And that goes for code boot camps, and that goes for colleges. And career paths aren't all the same. And if you think about it, if, if you're going to be a great employee somewhere, you don't uh, just, you know, bang out widgets at your seat and in some uncurious way, mm-hmm. and not try to improve the business or figure out how adjacent functions work or move up. You have to be that way about pursuing your education. And I think take control and ownership of it because there's a lot of information out out there for people who do want to take ownership. Now. At the same time, I'm long colleges. There are thousands of colleges in the United States. We have the best post-secondary education system in the world. You know, people still try to come here to study in our in our colleges. And a lot of them are invested in student outcomes. They know that's what people need. Mm -hmm. It's just hard for them to stand out right now. And I think what we'll see, what I'm a believer in, is that the best practices that are refined outside of colleges at places like code boot camps are going to be delivered long-term. They're going to be distributed through the college platform. Because our college platforms, we have these public institutions, private nonprofits all over the country who are subsidized heavily by the federal government and sometimes by state governments. They're not going anywhere. The best ones just, we just need to help the best ones stand out mm-hmm. so that students know which one is the right one for them. And colleges, for example, who want to have a poetry degree, nobody's saying, I don't think the future of higher ed is that you can the poetry degree. I think the future higher ed is you get the best poetry faculty you can, you excel at poetry, and you have a great poetry department, but you're realistic about what your students need. Yeah. And if poetry is setting you up for a career path, you know, a great medium and long term career path, five years out, you're made. You no, know, these skills will really kick in. Your writing, your communication, your broad knowledge of civilization, whatever it is, that'll kick in. You have to just enhance it some with something that helps with the early career path. And I think outside vendors, you know. Businesses that started as co camps, for example, may one day be brought in as enhancements for liberal arts curricula, where nothing changes what you learn in the poetry classroom, but there is going to be a structured internship, or there is going to be a course on how to use Salesforce. Yep. Because I think that's what's missing is just this bridge to an early career path. People who succeed in an early career path and have a college education are very successful. and it's. Re- I understand why innovation is happening outside of colleges because it, it's hard to innovate inside colleges. But once we've proven that something works, and I think you'll see this even with a lot of your partners at Career Karma, they're going to learn to distribute through colleges instead of try to compete head to head, or maybe even buy colleges, become colleges. Right? And we've seen that with Make School. But um, you know, you had a guest on Dan Rosenzweig from Chegg yep. a number of episodes ago, and he had a line. You know, he's, he told his kids, "You'll never starve if you can sell." Yeah. I mean, there are there are things that. Are, And that that doesn't take four years to learn and it complements non-STEM education very well, right? Non-STEM education can help people succeed at that. So I think, yeah, long-term, I think education is going to have to focus more on its value proposition, though. And there is some people misled right now who think that the value proposition of every college is prestige or graduate school acceptance. And, And colleges are a little confused about that. There's 50 or 100 colleges where the value proposition is prestige. And you compete to get in. But then there's 4,000 plus where they compete to get you. And the value proposition is an employment outcome. And that's really why people are paying to attend. And the colleges who act to sell that to students and own it are going to beat up on the ones who don't. My customers are the ones who are choosing to emphasize that. And I'm the way that they show that they're emphasizing it.
0: Yeah. I think that's a great overview. And you know, I think, let's say that people are listening and you successfully convince them that, Income share agreements are the way to go. You know, we talk a lot about protecting our dreams on the podcast, and I think a lot of people that have been burned historically are scared, right? And so, as you think about VMO education powered institutions, what consumer protections does VMO education guarantee people that are considering this income share agreement program?
2: Oh, that's a good one, yeah, because it is a new category, and Yeah, I mean, I think that, unfortunately, there may one day be entrants in the income share agreement market who don't have the same consumer protections. Mm -hmm. But the big things we do here, we focus on being in harmony with bipartisan income share agreement legislation in the House and Senate that's already been proposed. And so I guess lawmakers have given a lot of thought to what would be a great, appropriate consumer protections. We stay in harmony with that. What that means is, there's a minimum income threshold. There's an, always a number beneath which you pay nothing on an income share agreement. You know, you're know, you paying a percent of income, so the payments are designed to be affordable. There's a cap on payments. You never pay more than a known cap in advance. When we are using income, like percent of what income, right? Which income? We are using a consistent number. So we use gross income. That means if you own a house or rent, you're not treated differently. Or if you have a kid or don't have a kid, you're not treated differently. You know, Those are policy choices that we make it in government we want to favor homeownership or favor people having children but and so we give them tax treatment differently but we don't we use pre-tax incomes so that people are all treated the same I think it's an important consumer protection and I would say the last thing is because we work so much with colleges we're really cognizant of people's other obligations you know you talked about people having earlier in the podcast people having student debt obligations that affect their life decisions. And that can be overburdening. Vimo does the math on all that. So when we have a college partner or even a to boot camp partner, we're looking at what student debt people already have coming in, and whether they can afford to make income share agreement payments on top of that, or whether they can't. And I think you know, one of the most important consumer protections in income share agreements today and long term will be knowing, you know, when to say no—that this is a bad fit for a person, and we shouldn't offer to offer it to them.
1: That makes a lot of sense. So. You mentioned you listened to our podcast before, so you know on every episode we do the lightning round, and this is where we ask you questions that help our listeners also start up and break into tech. So, Arthur, take it away. Yeah, so this question is a little bit tactical, but
3: imagine you just moved to a brand new city, you don't know anyone, and you're starting from scratch, and you're trying to break into tech. So let's say you're trying to acquire a skill and get a job and you only have a $100 in your pocket, what would you do and how would you spend that $100 to get a job in tech?
2: Wow. I think I would use it to help people. So, And that's uh, not to be a cop-out, but to be more specific, you have to help people for things to come around. You're going to have to give before you get. And it might be that you're going to help by um, hosting people somewhere you know, with hospital- $100 spent on hospitality. So hosting people in your wherever you're living inexpensively even to learn from them and see if you can help somehow or to transport yourself to something go be in be, be in person with people um, i think so that i would have, maybe these are like not what anybody else would say but i would say use it to be in person with people it's really i'm not in person with you i'm i'm one to talk today but to go be present and see things and see people in person and come to them so it's, uh, you spend a little bit more than you would otherwise if you, if you had them come to you or expected them to come to you or just did phone calls. And the other thing would be hospitality. So try to extend hospitality to people if it's just hosting them for coffee where you live or something. Because I think that those are um, two things you can do to be a giver. And beyond that, I think you came to the city doing something, right? So we're not talking about 8-year-olds moving to a new city with $100. You know, these are 18 and up. You know, if, if you're 18 years old, you know something, you know how to help something, you know how to use a phone, you know how to type, whatever. You can use that to help somebody. And if you're helpful, you have a path here. When people say it doesn't matter what you know, it matters who you know. Yep. That's not quite right. What it, I would say what matters is who knows you and what they know you for. Mm, I like and that. if they're hiring entry level talent somewhere in any role, or any any function of the company, whether it's customer success or product or whatever, you know, operations, they're going to go for people who they know to be decent people, yeah, and who've had they've, where they've had a chance to develop some kind of authentic relationship with you as a person. Yep. So you have to become known. You have to let yourself be known, and not just be someone who wants a thing, mm-hmm. but be someone who's known as a giver and known authentically. And if you hundred counts, that's
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a great, a great answer. So, no, given that you sit in this unique position where education and careers are just kind of changing the way they operate. I'm not sure if you have children. I don't think we talked about that in pre-chat. But like, what kind of advice would you give to your, your kids about, you know, how they should plan out their careers?
2: I have four children. Um, My oldest is 13. And she told me the other day she wants to join the Marines. So I must talk about that too fondly. Um, you know, I, I guess, and, and, and I'll tell you, I mean, I'll just tell you what I, we talked about. I mean, she's seen me as a lawyer. She's seen me as a business leader. And she's seen me uh, talk. She, she was born when I was in the Marine Corps, but um, awesome. she was just a baby when I got out. So she's met a lot of Marines. She thinks she'd like to be around them. And I don't think that's a crazy idea. I mean, she if you're around a lot of people and you feel comfortable in that culture and you think, I'd like to grow up and be like this person or have that experience. That's not crazy, but I don't think she sees herself as a career person. I think she wants to go try it, like learn and build herself and move on from there. And I respect that. You know, I'm telling too much. here. My father was in the Marine Corps, got out before I was born. Mm -hmm. And he talked about it and how it helped shape him and and what he did. And uh, even though he was a construction worker, you know, he 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 loved the people he met and the experience he had. So I'd be really proud of my daughter if she did something like that, some form of service, where she got to serve with other people who were like-minded and discover herself a little bit and get paid to do it. I yeah. think, because what I, I am, I would also say is I don't expect every child I have to, who's God willing, you know maybe even more kids than four for us, but I don't expect every child I have to just go straight into college knowing what they want to be or what they want to do yeah. or to attend an elite institution. I think, you know realistically, maybe one or two will, and then maybe one or two or more are going to not know or not be prepared yet. Yeah, And I hope that they are just realistic about that And understand that you know I came, I went to law school. I was older than all my classmates. It didn't mean I couldn't be a good lawyer, even though I tried something else first. Yeah. And starting my company, I'm way older than a lot of the other venture-backed CEOs. It doesn't mean that you know I'm too old to learn a new thing, or can't draw on what I've learned in the past. And so I hope that they see my example. And I, I I would say I don't try to tell them prescriptively what to do. I try to share an example and. Share examples of people who've been really valuable for me or helped me in my career and how they can be like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's very helpful. And um, this question goes uh, back to you uh, interviewing people. So, a lot of our listeners, they might be learning how to code now, but they're interviewing with boot camps, they're interviewing with companies in like three, six months period of time. When you're sitting on the other side of the table and you're interviewing someone, What are those things that you look for in a candidate that makes the candidate stand out and makes you remember them?
2: Well, I think their answers to a couple of questions would stand out as well as... And I'll I'll tell you answers to my questions as well as a couple of other things. So on questions, I mean, if you you can tell me how you've solved a real problem for somebody taking ownership of a thing and run it, that means a lot. Or how you've overcome something difficult, that's meaningful. If you can tell me about a great boss you've had, like who's been a great leader to you, a great boss in something. And then, and so I'm presuming here, these people aren't purely academic in their background, right? They've done at least an internship or a summer job in the past. And they can speak to that. You know, what was, who is was the best leader at the class place you worked? I'm listening to how, what they can say about that. Like if they don't know what I'm talking about or can't think of an answer, then they haven't thought about that stuff. And I want people who think about that stuff and that's subjective, I know, but I don't think I, I'm probably not the only hiring person who thinks that way. I'm also impressed that people can tell me something about my business that I don't know. So, and I don't mean like I Googled how many employees you are, Tony, you have, and I bet you forgot today. I mean, an insight. Like they might not even be right, but I would, you know, I'm super curious about this thing at your company. And when I tell them about it, they say, I would try that differently or have you tried yeah. this other thing And when they, when they are constructive and creative and curious and again, can tell me something, you know, I, that doesn't go for employees, only yeah. even for investors. they I mean, talk yeah. to an investor. If the investor can tell me something about my company after just an hour, I, I, I'm always, even if they're wrong or yeah. if I disagree, wrong, strong word. If I disagree, I'm always impressed. Yeah. And yeah. I guess, I guess it, my, stage, I talk a lot to investors. So that's another kind of interview I do frequently.
0: Yeah. yeah. And last question, given that the Marines have been such a key part of your life, and it sounds like it's been a, it's influence not just for you, but also for your children, what are the key things that you've learned from the Marines that you think could be applicable to listeners of the podcast or anybody that's preparing for a career transition?
2: I'll tell you two things. The first one's a short one to explain. And the second one's a longer, one, both really important. First one's grow where you're planted. I joined the Marine Corps. I wanted to be an infantry officer. I wanted to, again, I wanted to run outside with a rifle, dig dig holes and sleep in them and have my fun. Basically one big camping trip. And I got stuck in artillery. Stuck is my word. They assigned me to artillery for the needs of the Marine Corps because they thought, you know what? You're just a little bit on the nerd side of this uh, Marine Corps, Antonio, and a little too good at numbers for your own good. You're going to go do the math on these explosive things that we shoot over our heads and you, you miss you kill people. It's a compliment to get that. I resisted it at first. And then I, I thought about it. I was like, you know what? I got to be great here. It's my chance. You know, if I go to artillery and I do a poor job, they're not going to say, well, then here's the infantry job you wanted. I had to grow where I was planted to be great and be known as a great officer. If I'd stayed in the Marine Corps, I would have had opportunities to lead units that were not artillery if I had been an excellent artillery officer, I could have grown from that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and built, built a really good reputation that way. So grow where I'm planted. And in the Marine Corps or any military branch is a place where you can learn that because the, you sign a contract for six, however many years. I was 18. I joined up for 10 years.
0: Wow.
2: You know, uh, and, and I knew I was going to get sent wherever they told me. Yep. And I had to accept that and just try to win at it. I think that's a, a great thing about the military. The other thing was followership. Mm-hmm. So I was an officer. Officers have... We have to, we don't pick who we salute either. You know, I have a boss always, but I had a lot of Marines in my, I I had a 65 Marine platoon. And then I was in charge of a unit of about 150 people. And so I had a lot of people who were followers and they're different. There's like many different styles of followership. The Marine Corps really focuses on culture a lot and making it easy for somebody to lead you. And I got to experience that. And, And I got to experience the different styles of followership for people who were, um, in my units, mm-hmm. when I later went to a law firm, and I had to work for people, in many cases younger than I was, who were uh, bosses of mine at the law firm, I was able, I feel like, in part because of my Marine Corps experience, to be a great follower, to research, like, how can I get in this person's head and deliver what they want, not just what they're saying? Like, how can I give them what they really want? How can I succeed at this without making them explain it all to me? Mm-hmm. How can I make my boss's life better? And that goes not just to bosses, but it goes to customers, right? Mm-hmm. I had clients at a law firm, and now it goes to in my business. You know, I have investors who are kind of my bosses, and a board of directors who are my bosses. Mm-hmm. But I have customers at my company, and I want I want to delight them. I want to stay ahead of them. I want to anticipate their needs. I think followership is something that was really important to learn in the military. It makes you a good team member, a good employee, and one day I think it can make you a good leader.
0: I love that. I love that. So grow your, grow where you're planted. Master followership understand that yep. being a follower can also make you a strong leader I think that's a great note to close on Tonio thanks for joining us what's yeah. the best way to stay in touch with you
2: well I'm on Twitter at Tonio Diso and then Vimo. my company is at VMO.com, BMO.com and you can reach us easily through that website if you don't just want to get me on social media
0: awesome so we're good well thank you for everything without further ado let's break in let's, let's, break, let's in. break in thanks for
1: checking us out We appreciate you for listening and always love your feedback on how we can do better. If you enjoyed this, let us know what you thought on the reviews by going to iTunes, searching for Breaking Into Startups, subscribing to our podcast and leaving a review. Also, if you know someone who came from a non-traditional background and is looking to break into tech, encourage them to sign up to our newsletter or tell them to join the Breaking Into Startups community on Facebook. Remember, if they don't want you in through the front door, go through the back door, around it, under it, or through it. Let's break in.